Hey everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. We bring in a number of different folks from all over the community to speak, make it dialogue-based, and make sure that we're talking about real issues. You know, just kind of keep us, keep the church on the ground, like really explore the earthiness of Jesus's life growing up under an oppressor. And how does that relate to today? Today's guest is Nick Pickrell. Nick is the organizer of The Open Table, a new worshiping community in Kansas City. The Open Table's mission is to be a place of reconciliation in a city divided. Their recent gatherings have centered around topics like cultivating authenticity, sex and the sacred, and white fragility. This growing group meets around tables for discussion, contemplation, and planned action. Its members believe that overcoming division requires open dialogue from many voices. With that in mind, they curate spaces and experiences that present new perspectives meant to challenge and inspire, letting people rediscover themselves and experiment with new ways to engage with our world. Welcome, Nick, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm excited to have this conversation with you and actually would love it if you would start by telling us about the years before the open table came to be, because they were actually pretty interesting themselves. But what were you doing and where were you living in the years before the open table began to organize? Yeah. So for five years, immediately preceding the creation of the open table, I lived in a neighborhood in Kansas City called the Historic Northeast in an intentional Christian community called Cherith Brook Catholic Worker. And it was at Cherith Brook uh, where I received a whole bunch of formation and kind of had my entire faith flipped upside down. Um, At Cherith Brook, we would offer showers to folks who are sleeping on the streets, uh, change of clothes, breakfast. Occasionally, we would ask folks to move in with us. Uh, Additionally, we would um, be engaged in a lot of peacemaking work. And we also did crazy things like shared our income, shared cars. Um, We had gardens, chickens, bees, fruit trees. So it was an all-in kind of intentional community, uh, Christian community experience. Yeah. So you said that it flipped your faith upside down when you began to be a part of this community. You were all in. What was your faith like before that and how did it change? Yeah. So I I mean, I grew up in, in a fundamentalist Baptist church. And as I got older, went, got into college, post-college, I, I started going to non-denominational churches that were very much in the Willow Creek model. Mm-hmm. So it was a slow move from fundamentalism into something a little bit more moderate. And I started working at a very moderate youth ministry. And it was there that I uh, read a book by Shane Claiborne talking about intentional Christian community. And I realized, especially for me, having loved summer camp as a kid and loved working at summer camps and realizing there's a bunch of folks all getting together to live differently, I realized that I didn't want it to end. And so when I read about this intentional Christian community kind of thing. I was like, I think there's something to this. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's for people who can't just afford to go someplace, but it's, it's a really holistic way of living. And it was really enticing to me. So after having read it, I, I, there was an email in my inbox saying, Hey, there's a new Catholic worker house in town. And I was like, that's interesting because I just read about this. So I showed up, they gave me cookies and a book, and I, I couldn't say no. I moved right in. <laughs> <laughs> so so what book did they give you? Uh, it was, Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, 10 Marks of the, or no, it was like 10 Marks of the New Monasticism. It was uh, a book compiled by the Rutba House. All right. And uh, so you moved in and you spent five years there. Um, you're taking like a different route into this leadership not unlike a lot of leaders of new worshiping communities in this movement, you did not go off um, and pursue a graduate degree in theology or a master's in divinity. You um, lived in this Catholic worker house and at a certain point um, were approached to begin 
seeing how the church might be more responsive in the community. Could you tell us a little bit about like when that move occurred, how it occurred? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, some of, some of the seeds of what is now the open table was beginning to be planted as soon as I moved into Cherith Brook. Okay. Well, one of the things, one of the things that I noticed very quickly is as soon as I moved in to that intentional Christian community where we were not only talking about our faith, but also wrestling with very serious injustices uh, reflecting on our own complicity within um, our own complicity in perpetuating and maintaining those injustices. Um, and while I, we were going through this like action reflection kind of work, I noticed immediately that the church that I was attending wasn't doing it for me anymore. And, and I realized it was because there was maybe two sermons that I can recall over the course of those five years that, that talked actively about the poor or, uh, folks living in oppression. Mm -hmm. And I just realized that church wasn't doing it for me anymore because that's what I needed not to knock the church for what it was doing that, you know, I'm not their target demographic, (laughs) someone who's living in a hippie commune. (laughs) Um, but it's something that I recognized I, I needed, I needed this, this faith to speak to injustice. And I, I just wasn't hearing it from the pulpit. So, uh, another thing that happened while I was living at Cherith Brook that was very interesting is we, because of our garden work, we were regularly on this urban farm and garden tour. And, uh, it was a chance for a bunch of folks from all over the city to be exposed to the work that Cherith Brook does. And what I found fascinating was, a bunch of folks who are Christian who rolled on through had a lot of critiques for us uh, because we don't force people to listen to a sermon in order to get services. And in fact, we would spend a night out on the streets once a year. And there was a gentleman one of these years that was out in front of a shelter. And I I had approached him and asked him um, if we were there in time to get dinner. And I will never forget what this man said, because I, th- I feel like it's deeply informative of, of the way that Cherith Brook opted to do things. Hmm. But he said, um, you know, at places like this, they make you listen to the service to get services. And I, th- I think they got it backwards because Jesus just gave you what you needed and you could stick around if you wanted. <laughs> and that's something that I will forever remember from this person who was sleeping on the streets and I think it's it, it's it's something that just reminds me. Uh, it's something that I that I hold dear to me because I, I do think that is the way Jesus did things. And so uh, the way that was reflected in the urban farm and garden tour is, you know, the Christians offered critiques, but the non Christians all wanted to move in. <laughs> and so I thought we had hit on something here, and I, I think we're we're going in the right direction if if that's what's happening. So uh, knowing that there's a bunch of folks who, who would love to try on community to integrate justice into their lives, uh, to follow this first century, you know, rabble rouser, organizer, Jesus, it was just, it was just a really cool experience uh, getting to do that. So after, at the end of the five years, like I lived at that community for five years and um as it goes, I got a little tired. And so <laughs> I decided to step away from the community life. But very quickly, I found myself very unfulfilled mm. um, in my two part-time jobs. And so the opportunity arose that there's a established Presbyterian church in town called Second Presbyterian Church. And they were actually looking to hire someone to plant uh, a new church. And at the time, I don't know if I necessarily felt called, honestly. Yeah. I felt like it was something where I, I didn't want to be bored in what I was doing. And I was very bored in what I was doing. And so I said yes to it. If I'm being honest, I said yes to it because I just wanted to be challenged. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't, and I didn't want to be bored. So I, I said yes. And that's when I uh, got hired on to plant a new church. Um, and it wasn't until about a year and a half in that I really felt the call start to set in deep within my bones for the open table, for being the organizer of a new worshiping community. 
Um, and I definitely have taken an untraditional path to get here. I've never set foot in a seminary, but if anybody has ever come in contact with Jody and Eric Garbison from Cherith Brook Catholic Worker, they will immediately know that they are incredible teachers um, that are always teaching. And we read really deep theological books while at the same time practicing everything that we were reading about. And so it was a really rich, holistic way uh, to live and to learn and to be a, a Christian today. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a necessary training for all of us who are people of faith um, and just such a rare opportunity that you you had to embed yourself simultaneously in the community and in these discussions about the values of Jesus Christ and um, the way he organized people around a vision for a new community. Um, so like, did you actually, when you, when you got bored and you took the job at second, um, how did you, what were your instincts? How did you begin, um, to work in that context? What'd you do first? Yeah. So once I got hired on, uh, and after breathing deeply because I was feeling anxious, yeah. <laughs> I was like, Oh no, what did I just do? Yeah. I re- I reached out to a bunch of people that I knew from various circles um, and gathered them all together, bought them pizza, and asked them a series of questions about the church. Um, and, and the way I found all these people is I've, I've also lived in Kansas City my entire life where the open table is located. And I have actually put myself in situations where I have been in a number of bands, so I meet a bunch of people through that way. I have been an acting in town, so I've met a bunch of people that way. I have been active in the peace and justice community in town, so I've, been a- I've known a bunch of folks that way. So I drew folks in from these various circles, and we, I asked them three basic questions. What do you love about the church? Uh, what are ways that the church can grow and learn? And what dreams do you have for the church? Hmm. So based on the answers that folks gave to those three questions, those actually form the basis of what the open table has now become. So uh, from from those conversations, asking those questions, uh, I was able to identify eight folks who were really deeply engaged in the conversation. Yeah. And so I approached them and asked them if they would want to meet twice a month to help actually launch something together and create something together. So from the get go, it was very much a committee kind of process, like decision by committee. Like we, we operate still off consensus and we operate more in a flat leadership model rather than a, a hierarchical model. And we got the chance to come up with the values that we wanted for our community. So we, we came up with hospitality, community, rest, and beauty, and also justice as our main values for our community. So we got the chance to unpack that. We spent some time researching different communities that were doing interesting things, be they Christian or not. And then we came up with the idea for the open table, and we launched in March of 2015. Okay. Yeah. Uh, So I've got two questions I'm really curious about um, with those initial conversations. And the first thing that comes to mind for me is, did anyone uh, in those conversations say to you when you asked them, um, what do you love about the church? Were there people who said, like, I don't know anything about the church, or I've never been in a church, or I've kind of avoided church? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that well, one, I was winging it the whole time. I didn't really know what I was up to as the entire yeah. time all this stuff was happening. Uh, it just, I, all I can say is, is the spirit was at work because uh, it definitely wasn't me putting any sort of like vast amounts of knowledge on how to do this thing because I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the thing that I would say is I, I did intentionally choose folks who were burned out on the church. Okay. So a lot of the folks who were helping to form and and I realize this is also an ideological thing because I we wanted folks who were um, 
it's, it's where I was at. I was kind of burned out on church and looking for something different. And I was reaching out to a bunch of friends who were in a similar place because I felt like we could have a very synergistic kind of conversation. So uh, a number, like uh, the vast majority of the folks who were there and every single one of the folks who joined the initial leadership team to help get the open table off the ground were, were folks who had been churched and have experienced some sort of trauma or have been very disappointed or are disenchanted with how the, the, the church, with, with, with how the church yeah, like related to people. I mean, it feels like a lot of it has to do with the way the church relates to people or like how they treat people. For sure. Yeah. I mean, because there, there are a lot of folks who like in my instance, there are a lot of folks who wishes who wish that the church would actually be on the front line of social issues yeah. as opposed to being 20, 30 years behind mm-hmm. um, and being and being willing to have hard conversations. That was something that was a, a disappointment that folks expressed in, in the church. Um, and sometimes the exclusivity that, that can be broadcast, uh, from either the pulpit or from a congregation sometimes in, in the ways that we use language is, is a disappointment that folks had expressed. So we're like, okay, so what would it look like if we created something where, um, we bring in a number of different folks from all over the community to speak, make it dialogue based and make sure that we're talking about real issues, you know, just kind of keep us, keep the church on the ground, so to speak, like really explore the earthiness yeah. of Jesus's life growing up, living under an oppressor, Rome, and how does that relate to today? You know, those kinds of questions. And so that that's where I think a lot of the energy came up from that initial meeting. And so we just kind of followed that road and started the open table. Yeah. The, the topics that you all have explored together. Um, some of them I mentioned like white fragility or, um, recently you had, um, conversations on the sacred feminine. And I think your, your Christmas Eve service itself is, um, focused on understanding, what's happening at Christmas through the lens and experience of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which is a, in some ways a kind of an obvious starting place, but in a lot of ways it's just extremely rare. Um, it's kind of all about the baby Jesus or it's all about um, kind of the warm and fuzzy feelings of Christmas. You're looking at what it looks like um, to be, to examine spirituality from Mary's perspective and the Christmas experience for the one who was the mother of Jesus. Um, I'm curious how you guys um, make use of your values, like hospitality and community and rest and beauty and justice. How do they enable you guys to have hard conversations, important conversations? Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I, I would say in our community, the way that our values plays out within our twice monthly gatherings, we start by gathering on the table for a really earthy, ancient way of doing communion, which is breaking bread together. So we have a community meal and we recognize that we actually are pulling in folks from a number of different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, racial backgrounds, uh, different sexual orientations, religious, non-religious folks. And so around the table, as we break bread, the way we speak about communion is we recognize that Jesus, Jesus' body was actually broken, standing up for the injustice of his day. And we are called to be broken for one another because we recognize that none of us are free until all of us are free. It's very much that that passage in Hebrews about, you know, one member of the same body. If, if one part of the body is hurting, all of us are hurting. So it's very much in that kind of a spirit. And so we recognize that by starting with a meal and conversation, it actually orients us in a different way than if we were just to show up and talk about a, a like a controversial topic. Yeah. Because suddenly we have a little bit more stake in the game because we've just been sitting there chatting around the table with a bunch of folks who come from different backgrounds than us. And I think it sets us up in a different way to have 
an honest conversation while being committed to the relationship and to the community. So, so that's one way we practice community and, you know, hospitality also comes through that because we do have a number of folks who, um, it, it's, it could be very likely that they would not have a dinner if they did not come to our space. So the hospitality and the community take place there. The rest takes place because it is, we do try to make it a safe space, not in the sense that we're just going to be Midwest nice and not going (laughs) to offer, offer challenges to one another, like where it's going to be real and we're going to be uncomfortable, but it is a safe space. Like we're committed to, being in relationship with one another. So that's, that's kind of how that all plays out. And actually quarterly, the way we integrate rest into our gatherings is quarterly, we actually pause to do a Tize type of service where it's full of short, you know, four line songs that are very repetitive. So they become prayers in and of themselves. And we have a lot of time for centering prayer. So a lot of silence and we may have a guided meditation in the middle of it. So we try to make sure that we recognize that if, if we are trying to do the work of justice in the world, we have to be people of deep contemplation. Hmm. Otherwise, we will burn out, which Martin Luther King talks about as being the ultimate surrender is burnout. And so we, we don't want that to happen. We recognize that we need to dig deep into the well of our own Christian tradition if we are to continue to show up to do the work of justice. You guys have an interesting, you and Wendy um, and the other leaders of the open table have an interesting commitment to not being the front people in um, 100% of the gatherings and spaces and conversations that take place. Um I, in the introduction, I introduced you as the, is the, um, organizer of the open table. Uh, Wendy is the co-curator of the open table. You're not the pastors of the open table or the leaders. You don't refer to yourselves as the leaders of the open table. Um, so who is leading when you're not and why did you guys set it up that way? Yeah. So we early on made, made a decision to, not be quote unquote teaching pastors of the open table. And a lot of that came just out of the conversations that we had, those preliminary conversations about what we wanted it to be. Um, we at, at the open table, we have a commitment to being an anti-racist church among other things. And, you know, for me being a straight white male I recognize that I've been given the opportunity to speak even when I'm not qualified. Yeah. So I can walk into a room, speak. People will probably take me somewhat seriously, even without me giving my, having to give my credentials right. for someone to give me a hearing. And so, but there are plenty, there's so much wisdom that exists in this city. And so what we wanted to do was have a number of different folks come in and talk about a number of different things from their perspective. So we're not asking a person of color to come in and only speak about race. We're not asking someone who is maybe a DACA recipient to come in and only speak about immigration issues. Like we want to hear you are more than just that. And, and we want folks to hear a number of different things from a number of different perspectives. And so that's a lot of why we do what we do. And so some of the things that we do, in addition to just bringing folks in from a number of different backgrounds to just speak from their perspective on a whole myriad of things, we also are, we try to be strategic about who speaks first in our gatherings because we recognize that who speaks first says something. Um, and we want to make sure that we are lifting up people of color, LGBTQ folks, um, folks who are, have different identities that are not part of dominant culture. So we want to make sure that we're lifting those up, especially as we're trying to be a community of peace and reconciliation in a city divided. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how does how does beauty fit in? It's one of your values. Yes, beauty. <laughs> how did that come yeah, to so be? It's a tricky yeah. one, and it, it, you'd get a different response on what it is depending on who you ask. Yeah. For me, 
one of the things that I love about our dialogue-based approach is it makes community very messy and authentic. And the thing that I think makes it beautiful is we don't freak out when folks maybe say things that don't really have anything to do with the topic that's being discussed. Yeah. Or if someone is at our gatherings and they may offer a challenge that makes us all feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't freak out about it. And we think, <laughs> we think that's because for me, that would be everybody. a source yeah. of anxiety. I think it's sort of like you open yeah, it up, yeah. which is important. But what if somebody says something just totally off the wall? You're not freaking out. You said, so what does not freaking out look like? Probably smiling, being like, I wonder where this is going to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a, a lot of it is just like, yeah, this is it, you know, and, and part of it comes from my background at Cherith Brook. We often would say whenever we just had some crazy stories over the years living at Cherith Brook and we're just like, yeah, we, we can't make this stuff up. And I feel like offering a space where we have folks from a number of different backgrounds, uh, a number of different generations, um, all these folks are in a room and they're all talking. It's it's inevitable that some stuff is going to come up, and so at the open table, we've kind of got to gotten to carry on that mantra. It's like ah, I can't make this stuff up. It's just, but it's beautiful though because people are able to express themselves and offer their gift to the community, and and it also beauty also shows up in other ways because we we have plenty of opportunities for people who are part of our community to speak and to offer what they have. And it's a gift to me and to the community to see the ways that, that they lead and in ways that I would have never imagined, but it was deeply powerful and meaningful to our community for them to do it as them and to do it in their own way. And so for me, that that's where I think the beauty happens. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I feel like in my mind, I'm sort of geeking out on uh, something that I read once about the gospel of Mark, which is this idea that like the senses Mark doesn't allow it, the listeners and participants in the story to really rest in the sense of like that the things that are happening around Jesus and in the community at that time kind of shake you up a little bit toward action that it's not this, it doesn't really reach this place of like things have totally gelled together or there's a synthesis at the conclusion of an event Jesus is involved in, which kind of, to me, I don't know if you guys, I mean, it seems like there's an acceptance of that to a certain extent at the open table where someone says something that feels maybe discordant with the theme that was set before the community that night, or maybe discordant with the values of the open table, there's this live exercising of, um, as Donald Jewell put it, the Merkin scholar, God is on the loose. Like there's, if God is on the loose in our community, then we can't harness that completely. And we shouldn't harness that completely. Like we have to let the spirit do what the spirit is doing. Yeah, totally. I, yeah, for us, it's it's definitely that. Like, God is on the loose. And honestly, we don't want a perfect church anyway, because if it's a perfect church, I don't think it's real. Huh. Uh, so for us, when we have these kinds of things, it, it, again, is a, a sign that we're doing things right, I yeah. think, because uh, it, it, it lends itself to authenticity. It's such an interesting conclusion to me in a way, because the origins of the open table take place in these conversations of people about how the church was also not perfect in its own particular ways. Like, um, and I think we could say unfaithful to people and to the community yet at the same time, you've maintained this stance at the open table that you're, you're not, you're trying to live into, um, a fresher, more faithful reality of where the church had failed, but you're not, you're not pretending or committing that a church is not going to screw up or, <laughs> or be perfect. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, and what, one of the things we regularly say, so yeah, one, yes, we're, we're not perfect. And what, what's been beautiful is there have been times where I've had ideas or suggestions and I've gotten such great pushback from the leadership team of our own community that taught me something that was like, shoot, okay, yeah, thank you for bringing that to my attention. 
that was a way that I was kind of veering off the rails a little bit. And they, they called me back, which is great. And I love that mutually accountable relationship that exists there. I, I think it's really beneficial to have and crucial to have. Yeah. Would you feel comfortable giving us an example of that? <laughs> sure, sure. I, 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 I won't mention names <laughs> yeah, or anything, yeah. but bas- basically th- there was a particular person who was attending our gatherings who it, it, it was clear they weren't happy being there. They, they continued to get increasingly upset every time they came because of the format that we had and this kind of thing. And because it was starting to become such a disruption – uh, I was wanting to ask that person to have a conversation. Well, I did ask that person if they would have a conversation. They they declined. And so my next thing that I was going to do was to ask that person to be away for a time uh, until we could have a conversation. Mm-hmm. J- just to make sure that we could maintain some sort of a relationship because for some reason, you know, I mean, as, as a leader, folks will like, it will come on me. Like I, it's, it's, I I get that when folks are angry, it will most likely be directed at me, even though I'm not the person up there speaking uh, (laughs) most of the time, it will still be directed at me. And so it was in that moment that I, I was talking about this with our leadership team and just trying to work through that scenario. And I had mentioned that and every single person on our leadership team was like, no, 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 no. We should not do that. We should not ask her to be away. Let, let us handle this. And they, they did a great job of, you know, being with this particular individual and making sure that they were sitting next to this particular individual and uh, just being an ear for them during our gathering. So it wouldn't necessarily derail any of our table talks or those kinds of things that was happening. And it was, it was a moment where I was like, yeah, okay, grace is good. <laughs> yeah. And thank goodness so, you have a team that you can actually, you know, that you can be oh, real yeah. with. It's not yeah, the team sure. you're trying to impress, right? It's a team that you're just like, I need some help with this. This is a challenge. Like you bring the yeah, real stuff totally, to your totally. team. And it was a beautiful instance and it shows the power of um, whenever you get a group of people together and you start brainstorming, like suddenly, instead of in my mind in that moment, I thought there was only one of two options. It's either ignore this and it's going to continue or have this individual leave for a short time until we can have a conversation to now there's like an infinite amount. I'm looking at like eight other possibilities because all eight of these people said, hey, let us try some stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And it, it's that that's what I think makes the church beautiful. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about a grant that you recently received as an organization, and um, it's giving you at the open table some space to take a look at the concept of discipleship. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about that and um, what plans you all are making and what you're interested in exploring? Yeah, totally. So we applied for a grant from the Synod, like the Mid-America Synod, and we received it. It's the Paragon grant. And what we want to do is create an experiential discipleship curriculum. So while I was living at Cherith Brook, I had the opportunity to engage in some conferences on the Gandhian program and got to experience some different teachings and on practicing integral nonviolence, which is meaning that that as a person and as a community, I am going to consciously make a decision to not participate in any systemic form of injustice, any domination system. So what that means, integral nonviolence would mean that if I don't know where my food came from, I should probably just grow it. So someone on down the line isn't being treated unjustly. If I don't know where my clothes came from, uh, chances are if I'm getting them for cheap, someone on down the line was treated unjustly. So let's make our own clothes. So that's like the Gandhian kind of thing. And in the Gandhian program, there's three particular stages to it in order of priority. So the first priority is self-transformation, which is the work of 
having greater compassion and love for self, God, and others, both friend and enemy. The, the second piece of that program is the constructive program, which is the getting your hands dirty, getting your, putting your hands into the earth, and doing the work of co-creating uh, the community of God's people on earth. So it's the building of the new society within the shell of the old. That's the constructive program. Mm-hmm. And the third priority is political action, uh, which folks would know from Gandhi's time, that would be things like the salt march uh, that ended up being a catalyst to help end British the British occupation of India. So what we wanted to do was create a discipleship curriculum that also kind of followed the Gandhian model because we see a lot of beauty to that, especially because at the, at the open table, we want to be a, a community that is a hub for cranking out mystical activists, like folks who are deeply contemplative and have done a lot of inner work and are also ready to get out into the streets to do the work of justice. Okay. But we want to do that. We want to do that in a, in a responsible way. And so we, the, the three pots that we have are those three areas that I mentioned of the Gandhian program. Is the self-transformation, yeah. co-creating, and then the political action? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Okay. Yeah, and so what we'd want to do is with the, um, with the self-transformation piece, we want to, rather than give you a 200-page curriculum, we want to come up with a series of activities and, and things that folks can experience that – uh, will help them increase that compassion and love of God, others, and self. And in addition to that, we want to have a whole series of activities and exercises so folks can begin to unpack the various isms that we all carry within ourselves, be it white saviorism, racism, sexism, these kinds of things, right? Because mm-hmm. we want to make sure that when we're actually doing the constructive program, that that work of building the new society within the shell of the old, we want to make sure that we're doing it in a responsible way that, uh, so we don't end up unwittingly recreating an unjust system. Because if I don't do like the self-transformation and I'm not unpacked that and done the, the hard work in community, I could be thinking like, oh, this new society looks like my white saviorism. <laughs> like, like, well, if we could just get people to have the things white people have, then then we're on the move, right? Yeah, that's totally it. And then on, on the flip side, like the other piece, the political action piece is we see, we take Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about blessed are the peacemakers. We, we take that call very seriously as a community. Um, and we see that as being... Uh, a call for us to be actually makers of peace, not just keepers of peace. Because keepers of peace mm. can mean a whole mess of things. That can easily mean that like, okay, we're being Midwest nice. <laughs> for those who don't live in the Midwest, Midwest nice is... <laughs> we don't address the elephant in the room, but we're very polite. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that that's the whole issue. So being a maker of peace is where we actually see where there's the potential or violence is actually happening and we step in to make peace. But even in doing that, we have to make sure we unpack the isms because sometimes we can show up and intervene and unwittingly can make the situation worse for the person who's on the receiving end of whatever oppression or injustice is there. Yeah. So that's all the more reason why the unpacking the isms is so important. But that that's what we're hoping to accomplish with this grant is to come up with a series of habits, practices and disciplines so folks can be the church in the world. That sounds amazing. Do you, do you see that as those three steps and and orientations are they do they function in a circle or is it sort of they're building on each other or when you get to the political action piece do you return always doing the self-transformation? I think that they all can kind of happen. The, the, I mean, the ideal is self-transformation is nonstop. That's why it's okay. the top, the top priority. Yeah. Cause we have to continually do that work of surrender and growth and continuing to go deeper and deeper unpacking, like just basically like, um, the onion thing, <laughs> peel back the layers of the onion. Yeah. So that that's consistently happening. And from my own experience, what, what I've noticed from my time at Cherith Brook, because we were doing all of these things, we were doing self-transformation work, we were 
it regularly engage in the constructive program, which actually humanizes the policies that we're advocating for. So instead of it being just, no, we need this policy. Yeah. It's like I have very specific people and people's experiences in mind as I go out and do political action. And so whenever I go to a city hall meeting or a city council meeting, and it's clear they're just checking a box and they're not really caring about my testimony uh, for as a reason why they shouldn't enact an ordinance that will further criminalize being poor. Um, I can leave very bitter and very angry, but the second I get back to my community and I get to re-engage in relationship uh, with my friends who are living lives where uh, they are experiencing many forms of oppression it uh, grounds me again. Because if I don't have that and I'm only doing political action and I'm not doing self-transformation, I'm not being grounded by doing the work and, and humanizing the policies that I'm advocating for, then I just I know that I'm just going to become bitter <laughs> and angry. And that, that's, I don't think that's helpful. Um, I, I think anger is, is a productive emotion when channeled, but I, I want to be a person who is guided by love and um, love for God, love for friend and enemy and, and love for self. And so in order to do that, I think those two self-transformation in the constructive program is so key. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I've experienced that when I've had the opportunity to visit the open table and some other communities where you've sensed that another way of being is possible because there is this, um, collective allegiance to the values that the community commits to. You're like, okay, you know, not everybody can be, you know, faithfully politically active all the time or humble or, you know, love themselves, love others, love community. But then you get there and you realize it actually is possible because of the give and take within the community and to, to leave that space as an individual, I think it, it sheds that light in our own communities when we return for those of us who don't live in Kansas city, we have the opportunity to go to the open table or other places like that. It's such a gift because uh, it's so easy to become apathetic and think, you know, churches are just one piece of the puzzle or um, we can't do everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I thank you guys for doing the difficult work and then doing it in a way that is, that's sustainable and that builds on itself and um, being generous enough to, uh, to share what's happening with other people. Yeah. Thank you. What, what a yeah. kind compliment. <laughs> <laughs> it truly is. I mean, I think we all have those places, hopefully. I mean, anyone listening, thinking about this work or whether you're involved in nonprofit um, things outside of the church, within the church or thinking about your own life and, how it relates to what you believe, um, how you're supposed to live. We need, I think, those ironic places <laughs> that that are standing um, with with what is right. Um, it is possible, and um, to be able to return to those is is part of the necessity. Yeah, I yeah, think totally. Um, I would love it if you would share with us if you have a favorite story in scripture these days or if you always had the same one yeah i mean th there are a couple that are coming to mind um one that's been coming up a lot recently for me specific to the kansas city context is actually the feeding of the five thousand and mark okay so i got the chance to preach on this just recently but in kansas city maybe about a month and a half ago there's a a collective called free hot soup and they are a group of folks. It's actually only a Facebook group. There isn't real any sort of organizational structure to it. Um, but what they do is they go to different parks at different times during the week and they offer food, clothing, uh, uh, just a variety of things uh, for folks in who, who are sleeping on the streets as well as just neighbors and things who want to come out. And the way they frame it is like, hey, we're, we're out here just hanging out with friends. Hmm. And about a month and a half ago, there was a coordinated effort by the health department and the, the police department 
where they actually raided three of the parks. And while folks were waiting in line, they confiscated the food. And when the Free Hot Supers said that they were going to just continue serving after they left, the health department then, which it was their standard practice, thankfully now they've stopped it, but they put all the food in trash bags and poured bleach on it. So it would be inedible. Wow. So... So when that happened, that got me all fired up, and uh, especially knowing that this, you know, this this incident happened within the historic Northeast neighborhood where Cherith Brook is located. So when that happened, it made it reminded me of how sneaky some of these ordinances and some PR speak can be, because the health department stated that they wanted to make sure that folks were access to healthy food and because free hot soup didn't have a permit to serve food outdoors and uh, because the health department didn't know where the food came from and didn't know that if it, if it was kept at a proper temperature, they, they decided to throw the food away to ensure that foodborne illnesses wouldn't spread amongst an already vulnerable population, which on the surface sounds like a very benevolent thing, but it then reminded me of the feeding of the 5,000 and how I think Jesus would have been shut down if he were to do that in 2018 <laughs> in, in the historic Northeast. Like he would have gotten shut down because uh, it's the exact same kind of thing where you've got a number of different folks gathering together to have food and they have fish just hanging <laughs> the out. Sun, they right? have like a couple <laughs> fish that they're, yeah. I mean, where, where, where's the Purell? Where's the hand, hand sanitizing stations, mm-hmm. you know? Was this fish kept at a proper temperature? Like, why aren't anybody wearing latex gloves while they distribute the fish and bread? So, you know, you have all these things. And, and it, it reminds me of the, the, like the, the, the deeper layer to that story that I really appreciate is the deeply political nature of the feeding of the 5,000. Because immediately before it, you have um, a backdoor meeting with Herod talking about what to do with this Jesus fella. And you also have them conspiring and then actually beheading John the Baptist. And it happened at a banquet. Um, that, that's, that's the banquet that Herod had for his birthday. And Herod, um, he had a couple different capitals. And one of the capitals, the big industry there that he stood to gain a lot of money from was the bread industry. And then in the other capital, he stood to gain a lot of money from the fish industry. And it was interesting to me that Jesus, uh, the, the two things that the, the disciples produced were the very things that mm. would have probably made Herod real mad, like fish and bread. And Herod wasn't getting money from it yeah, because they somehow multiplied it <laughs> and fed 5,000 people with the very thing yeah. that uh, is heavily, heavily, heavily taxed. And, uh, and so the way, the reason why it's so meaningful to me is it's when when I look at today's context, it's like on the surface, this seems like a very benevolent thing. You know, Jesus just feeding the 5,000, just like the free hot supers feeding folks. And then maybe even the health department response seems benevolent, but you dig a little bit deeper and then suddenly you start to uncover things like, oh yeah, that's right. There's been a number of neighborhood associations in the historic Northeast that have been pushing for a whole myriad of ordinances that would make being poor a criminal, a punishable offense. And so when you start to recognize that, you start to question, oh, why did they show up there in the first place? Was it actually because of a concern for public health? Or was it because the city was receiving a lot of pressure from some more powerful, politically powerful neighborhood associations who really don't want folks congregating in the parks in the neighborhood. Mm. And really they, they, and so this is, so it starts to change the meaning of things. Cause I, I would say that ordinance like this are really a way to starve out the poor and shove them into shelter systems, which a lot of folks don't like and uh, aren't ready for. And so, um, so what do we do with that? You know, and uh, so so for me, it was it was an instance. It was a it's a, it's been a reminder, like that story and the free hot soup thing has been a reminder to me that you know I'm never going to be for any ordinances that criminalize being poor. 
but I will before ordinances that address root issues of poverty. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we see Jesus doing the same thing. So. Right. And the magic so often is happening in those, in the underside. Yeah. <laughs> when you look at scripture where Jesus, where people are being transformed by God in communities, it's, it's happening in those spaces that you mentioned in the public spaces where yeah, anything totally. could happen, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, mm. good or bad. Do you have any final thoughts for um, people who are listening today about the church or what this work is like? One of the things that there are a couple of things that I think have been very uh, beneficial for us as a community. So one of the things that we learned early on is we wanted to be a multicultural, multiracial church. And I tried doing that initially with a, a leadership team that was full of nothing but white people. And I want folks to, the reason I state that. How did that go? It did not go yeah. well. It did not go well. Okay. Um, <laughs> did not achieve the. No, know. no, 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 not at all. And we've made significant strides since then to be an actual multiracial church. But that has come with us doing a lot of really deep, authentic, mutually accountable relationship work with, with folks who are people of color and folks who um, would identify as LGBTQ. Um, so I, I say all this just to recognize, just to, to point out the fact that like we may have these ideals as, as churches, but it's important for us to one, just recognize who's around the table. And if folks aren't represented uh, and are given power, um, then good luck. Like in our instance, if it wasn't for the fact that we gave folks real power, uh, there's no in the world we would have uh, gotten to the point that we are today being a lot more multiracial and multicultural than we were when we started. Um, but then beyond that, like I, I just think it's been really great to continue to say that change is the constant at the open table because it's allowed us to be very adaptable and flexible and to fail and learn and try again. And those are a couple of things that I think have really helped us out a lot uh, over, over the years. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being a part of uh, this conversation. And thanks to all of you at the open table for the work that you're doing. And thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for having me. You can find out more about The Open Table and get involved in its work by visiting theopentablekc.com. Special thanks to the forward-thinking leaders of the Presbyterian Church USA who first launched this movement, and to the Presbyterian Mission Agency and leaders like you. Thank you for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Our producer is Martha Ames Sanders. You can visit our website, newchurchnewway.org. Catch you next time.